You're listening to the Lessons in Real Estate Show, sponsored by Mission First Capital, bringing real estate investment deals for active duty and veteran investors. Your host, Anthony Pinto, searched land, air, and sea to find military investors just like you investing in multifamily and commercial real estate, both active duty and veterans. Hear their stories, learn their lessons, and be inspired by the obstacles they have overcome on their path to financial freedom. Whether you are overseas or stationed at home, if you want to get started as a military real estate investor, this is the show for you. And now your host, Anthony Pinto. I'm so excited to have you guys here today on the revamped new and improved version of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I wanted to refocus on my mission here in life uh, with this podcast, and that is to help teach and inspire 1 million military members and veterans to achieve financial freedom through real estate. And as a part of the March to a Million campaign, my call is to show you the path to freedom of time and money, whether you intend to stay in for 20 years or get out next year. And so listen to the stories of fellow military members and investors just like you struggling, overcoming and achieving success in multifamily real estate and even some of them doing it while active duty and really dig into their lessons learned as well as their failures on their path to success. Uh, But you came here for the show, so let's get to it. Hey learners, and welcome to another edition of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I'm your host, Anthony Pinto, and today we have another great guest. He is an active duty Army Ranger. Uh, While he was in college, he managed to acquire 12 single family properties for student housing and he just got a 101 lots mobile home park LOI submitted. Super excited to have him on today. Jesse, welcome to the show. Dude, Anthony, thanks for having me on, dude. It's it's fun to come on this because like I've I've listened to almost every episode so far. So obviously a huge fan. And then the opportunity to come on as a guest, uh, it, it's really cool. So thanks again for having me on, brother. It's a privilege for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and uh, and I appreciate what you say about about the show. You know, I I tried to I try to offer as much value as we can with the show and, and obviously with the guests as well. And, um, you know, I, I, listening to you, you kind of talk about your background, you know, a few days ago and, and reading your bio here. I mean, you, you kind of had a, um, a very storied history with, with real estate. I mean, you got started really early. I mean, in college, that's freaking amazing. I, gosh, when I was 22, 23, and in college, like I was just trying to get to graduation, right? And <laughs> getting through all the extra schooling I had to do. So I think it's amazing what you've been able to, to accomplish. Um, but uh, but let's start with your military background and how that got you into real estate. Yeah, absolutely, man. So again, it's it's awesome to be here. It's a privilege to be on the show with you. Uh, yeah, military background. I uh, commissioned as an active duty army officer, uh, field artillery branch from SUNY Albany in upstate New York in uh, 2017. Um, again, a field artillery officer. So I, I do a lot of uh, stuff with aircraft. I do stuff with uh, howitzers, mortars, stuff like that. Um, I've, I've been in a total of four years. I've uh, split my active duty time between two locations, the uh, 10th Mountain Division in Fort Drum, New York. So not too far from where I grew up. And then um, I completed various courses, uh, ranger school, airborne school, mountain warfare school, and then assessed uh, through the ranger assessment and selection process, which is kind of like the, uh, the entrance or the gateway into the 75th Ranger Regiment to, uh, to join that organization down on Fort Benning, which is where I reside with now uh, with the U.S. Army Rangers, which has been an incredible, fulfilling career. I mean, to, uh, 
rub shoulders with some of the greatest leaders in the army and from officers to non-commissioned officers to, uh, to junior enlisted. I mean, it's an incredible opportunity to be around that much talent and that much, uh, hard work. So it, it definitely, uh, makes you better as, you know, not just as a soldier, but also, you know, as a person, as an investor, um, it makes you sharper and, and yeah, uh, that's kind of like my military background. It's kind of funny how that kind of drove me into real estate. Um, you kind of already touched on it, but, uh, when I was going to school in upstate New York, um, I want to say it was probably, I was 19, just turning 20, um, getting ready to move off campus, probably like my, right before my junior year or so. And I, you know, started looking around, like, you know, looking for houses to rent with my buddies and looking at the market and where it was at currently. And, um, I came across just, uh, I don't know if it was maybe a problem or an opportunity, but I was like, man, unfortunately there's like, some of these houses are disgusting. Like some of these houses are like garbage, uh, owned by slumlords, you know, or you talk to tenants who are already living in them and they're like, man, my landlord just ripped my security, you know, my $500 security deposit. Cause I broke one of his blinds, like something ridiculous like that. So, um, basically I was like, man, I bet I could kind of do this better. Like, uh, I think one of my buddies at the time, he was already his, his dad or something was in real estate. And so I had like a general idea of how a, a cash flowing asset kind of worked. So, um, basically I just like an idea or, you know, maybe an aha moment. And I was just like, you know, Hey dad, Hey, you know, a couple of my buddies, like, what if we bought a house and, uh, you know, rented it to college students, you know, we can rent by the bedroom to kind of maximize our, our net operating income because it's student housing and nobody's related. You know, you, you don't want to kind of lose that money by just renting by the unit. Why not rent by the bedroom? And, you know, I bet we could, you know, take great care of the houses. You know, obviously I have an in with the student body with the tenants right now. And I was like, um, you know, would, would do a lot of value add. Um, we'll take great care of the tenants. And I'm sure we could kind of maximize that opportunity. And what was just a good idea as, you know, a 20 year old uh, nobody dude um, has now grown into a 12 property portfolio that we've kind of just stacked on top of each other, one property at a time uh, every six months or so. And um, it, it really speaks to when you look back at, you know, people, people sometimes freak out when they hear student housing, especially in the last 12 months with COVID, you hear universities going remote and, uh, you know, guys in student housing, their, their hearts drop when you hear that. But it, it really speaks to the level of, you know, how great we take care of the tenants, uh, the level of product that we supply. I mean, in the five years that we've been doing this, we've never been at less than 100% occupancy. We've never had a single issue with a tenant paying. Um, we've never spent a single dime on marketing. All marketing has just been word of mouth. Um, we, we get calls from other, uh, you know, I'll say competitive landlords or other, you know, competitors on a weekly basis. Hey, you know, do you have any tenants? You know, I've got to rent this unit. Um, I've got a, you know, I, I need to get tenants in here. I've got a vacant house this semester. I mean, we have waiting lists and, and we're hearing about, uh, the competition having issues like that. So it, it just goes to show, you know, when you take care of the tenant, the consumer, you supply a good product. I mean, the, the, uh, the house and, and the revenue will take care of itself. Um, but, but yeah, that was really just a good idea that, you know, here we are five, five and a half years later. Um, that whatever I, I, I pitched a couple of guys on and it's grown into a phenomenal cash flowing, uh, little portfolio, you know, all residential. Um, but, but yeah, that's kind of how I got started, um, in, in real estate investing. And, uh, yeah, I loved also, I don't know if you have any questions on that. I mean, I'd love to kind of talk about, you know, scaling to commercial assets and stuff like that too. So.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot to unpack there, and and you you framed it very beautifully the way you talked about um, you know solving this problem. And I think that's kind of the yeah. root essence of being a real estate investor and really being an entrepreneur in general is being a problem solver. And you saw an obvious issue while you were living it, and you found a solution to it. While 20 years old, also going through college, which I think is, like I said, amazing, because I was definitely not thinking about any of that when I was 20. Um, so, so you kind of, you, you really took on the essence of being an entrepreneur. And not only that, but you also took on the essence of, of um, taking care of your tenants first. And I think this goes beyond just, you know, being a landlord. It goes, if you, once you get into kind of syndication, commercial real estate, kind of larger um, portfolios, taking care of your investors as well, because they are essentially the, the, how you take care of them is essentially the same as how you take care of tenants and, and always having them first in your mind. I, you know, it, it seems like such a simple statement to say, hey, you're going to take care of your investors or take care of your tenants. But as you have attested, many landlords are just trying to squeeze yeah. as much money out of a property as they can. You know, they won't fix things that are obviously, you know, broken. Um, they'll like have a property that's in shambles to try to get as much money out of it. Gosh, yeah, I, remember, sure. I remember when I was looking at properties in Kansas City, there was this Israeli uh, owner who had, I think, like, 5,000 units across the, uh, across the city. And, um, he got banned from buying any more properties within the area because the properties he had were so run down and like, like uh, half of them were like unlivable. Um, and he was just like getting, you know, government uh, money coming in. He was getting, you know, as much, he was just trying to squeeze as much cash flow out of these properties as, as he could. And I remember it got to the point where like the one property that I looked at that this guy owned, like half of the units were down because the leak had had uh, or the um, uh, roof had caved in on half of these units because of a water leak yeah. that just never got fixed. And I remember the broker sending me pictures of like the the whole rooms and whole apartments were just covered in mold and uh, you know, just like debris. And this were like people's stuff, like people like had lived there when this is happening. So, so long story short, you know, it, it seems like such a simple thing to say, take care of your tenants, take care of your investors. But there are a lot of people who are out there that are very much predators when it comes to, you know, buying property yeah, unfortunately. for their own sake, right? Um, and you'll find very quickly those types of people because this is, real estate is a very small niche of people and word gets around really quick when you don't take care of your investors, you don't take care of your tenants, you don't take care of your properties, so on and so forth. Um but, uh, but yeah, I did. I wanted, wanted to delve a little bit more into that student housing project. Um, how did you go about acquiring these properties and paying for them? And, and uh, yeah, let's, let's start with that. How did you go about identifying the properties and, and acquiring them? Yeah, absolutely. So everything that we do, and I love the acquisition side of it, and it's really how I, how when we've kind of built out our team where I kind of specialize in, everything we do is direct to seller. Um, I love cold calling. I love direct mailing. Um, in college, I mean, I would knock on doors. Um, obviously, I live right on the block. So we would uh, be like, hey, what, what's the next house? We, you know, what's something we think we could do with? Or what's the next one we want to target? Hey, let me go knock on the door. Oh, there's a, you know, maybe there are students in there. Maybe it's a family. Hey, do you know who owns this house? Oh, yeah. You know, whoever, John Smith owns this house. Um, hey, do you have a cell number? You know, giving them a call and, and getting on the phone with them and stuff. And everything that we've done has been direct to seller. And I, I love that mentality. It's really some people, you know, 
I think they're tentative or maybe they're a little freaked out about calling up people and cold calling or, or direct mailing. They're kind of afraid of that, you know, rejection or that failure. But I would tell anybody that, you know, when it comes to acquisition and, and direct to seller mentality, it's, it's all about, you know, be willing to do what others are not. Um, we were getting in on those deals and we've got some phenomenal, phenomenal deals. Like I'm talking like, if you look at today's housing market, I mean, we closed on a property uh, two years ago and obviously the market now is insanely hot. I mean, it was still hot two years ago, but we closed on a, uh, a single family, four bedroom, two bath for like $69,000 that we put like $30,000 into it. It's fully rented out. I mean, it's an incredible house, super value add. I mean, it had a lot of upside to it, but I mean, appraises now for, for North of 200,000. I mean, it's, it's incredible, but long story short, I, I got that by just building a relationship with that owner. It was a, it was a family that was getting ready to move out and uh, go on. I think the dad, his job was like a traveling job or, or something, but just building that relationship with them. Hey, Hey, sir, whenever you think about selling, um, you know, my, my father and I, or my buddies would love to talk to you. Um, and, and that was just an awesome, awesome, incredible opportunity, but yeah. So, you know, to answer the question, acquiring, like everything has been direct to seller, and then really, um, you know, when I talk about, you know, buying in the cash for it, it's really just been JVs, uh, again, like, you know, Hey, if we need more cash, let's bring some more guys in on this, you know, pitching my buddies who I lived with at the time on it. Um, you know, my dad's network and, and stuff like that and, and bringing him on, he's an accredited investor. So, but, uh, but yeah, really it, it, every house that we've done so far, it's, it's really been just a super basic, uh, you know, joint venture, basic format, uh, for the cash and how to get the down payment for it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I love the direct to seller and we're using that now in the commercial space and I love going direct to seller in the commercial space. So it's been an awesome opportunity, but yeah, if I, if I could sum that all up in, in one sense, it would be, be willing to do what others are not, you know, people don't like cold calling, people don't like direct mailing, I'll do it and, and I'll get the deals, you know, they can, they could not do it if they don't want it. So, but, uh, but yeah, so. I love that. I mean, I, I think it, again, it, I think it's the essence of, of being an entrepreneur, you're solving those problems for people. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, particularly once you get into commercial real estate, larger commercial real estate, you're getting a lot of out-of-state buyers that you know aren't willing to go and look at the properties and connect with the brokers on a local basis. And I think especially now with the market being so hot, you have to be super hyper-local within your market, right? You have to know, you have to put hand-to-hand, you have to go out and get drinks with you know, the, the brokers in the area and the owners and yeah, the property yeah. managers. Like you get... Like you can't just, you know, put, get on a whole bunch of brokers lists in Atlanta and, and think that, you know, as a new investor, you're going to, you know, have the golden property that's going to be like a 2X, you know, multiple for you in like a year. It's just, it's probably not going to work out right that. Um, but I think that's awesome that you managed to kind of take, you know, this business in your own hands and really make it what yeah. you're going to make it. I mean, you, you establish yeah. these relationships that, um, you know, even guys now, you know, in, in 30, 40 years old are having, you know, struggling to, to find, you know, money to place and do joint ventures and stuff like that. So I think that's awesome that you, you've managed to build this business from such a young, one, from such a young age, but two, you've managed to connect all of these people together to build a network to get you ultimately, you know, these properties that you've acquired. So, so let's, let's kind of jump into the commercial side of things. How has it, how has that mentality of kind of direct to seller, um, or strategy, I guess, gone for you so far with the kind of commercial real estate side of things? Yeah. So I'll probably 
six months ago. I mean, late last year or so I was like, you know, just made the conscious decision. I was like, man, I, I really want to do bigger, bigger deals. Obviously this residential thing isn't super scalable as is, you know, again, I'm faced with another problem. What's the solution? And uh, began researching commercial real estate, um, you know, read uh, Think and Go Rich by Napoleon Hill and the power of the mastermind and how crucial that is to your success. So I joined the mastermind and six months ago, I, I started, uh, you know, direct mailing um, mobile home parks, affordable housing uh, opportunities and stuff like that. I like the mom and pop uh, baby boomer ownership of it. And I thought it had a great potential to go direct to seller because I already had that background. Uh, with the student housing portfolio. So I would say last December, I sent out probably like 400 mailers or so, um, letters to various mom and pop owners. And I probably got like maybe three or four responses. I mean, it was probably right around 1%. It was, it was pretty ugly the first round, um, but kind of pivoted a little bit, you know, made some adjustments to the script, um, looked at what I could do better, um, you know, started cold calling, started knocking on doors, started, you know, making more trips and stuff like that. And you know, the change, that small pivot, you know, just making that little change. I mean, I'm not going to say overnight success, but within one week, I probably had five or six new off-market uh, deals in the pipeline by like first week of January, probably, um, that we've underwritten since then and uh, submitted various LOIs on. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, mobile home parks are super interesting. You know, not as many people are in it as so much with, uh, you know, multifamily. Um, but I love, I love, I think what really attracted me to it was the mom and pop mentality of how unconsolidated the industry was compared to multifamily and just breeds that uh, ability to go uh, direct to seller. But, but yeah, I mean that, you know, that started out in, in January or so submitting, you know, various LOIs um, striking out a lot uh, just because making people underestimate making that jump from residential to commercial. I mean, yes, there are a lot of similar things, but there are some things like, man, what used to work for me in residential, like it's not, it's not going to work on this, you know, big mobile home park uh, portfolio. Like I got to make those small adjustments that are going to pay dividends. So, you know, every, every LOI submitted, I mean, Hey, I'm, it didn't get accepted, but Hey, I'm closing the gap every time I'm, I'm one step closer. I'm, I'm one step closer. So just, you know, staying after it and, and keeping after it um, has now just last week, we submitted a uh, LOI on a 141 lot portfolio uh, mobile home park that uh, we just had accepted on Wednesday. Um, so the, uh, the uh, PSA is with our attorney today. Holiday weekend, we didn't get it out, but it'll be out uh, first thing Tuesday morning to the seller to get signed. And we're going to have this thing tied up next week and uh, pretty exciting, you know, to go from, uh, you know, 12 uh, single family properties to a 141 lot mobile home park portfolio in six months is it's exciting. I mean, I am, it's, it's hard to sleep at night right now <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's exciting. And it, it goes to show like, Hey man, like six months ago, I was just pure residential. And now we're about to be, you know, 141 lots later in mobile home park and two months, you know, probably late August or so we'll have that thing across the finish line and it, it's going to, it's going to cash flow really well. So it's exciting. It's the, it's the first of many. It's the, uh, it's the road to a thousand. That's what I'm calling it. I want uh, other people to be in on it and I want to uh, share some value on it, but, but yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of like just how, uh, whatever going direct to seller and residential kind of pivoted me to direct to seller and commercial and how I kind of, you know, made that small adjustment and, uh, kind of made that jump. Yeah. That leap earlier this year. So super excited. Yeah. Yeah, man. I think I love listening to you tell your story. I, I just love your mentality because, you know, especially now with multifamily, 
it's very difficult to, to find deals that actually work, much less get an offer accepted or an LOI accepted. And you basically took rejection after rejection and didn't yeah. say, hey, like this isn't working. I'm going to move to something else. You said, hey, this isn't working. What can I fix to make this work the next time? And I, I, I want to focus on that because I don't think that's a very common mentality to have. I don't think that people look at this from uh, look at real estate or really life in general from an abundance mindset, more of a scarcity mindset. And it's it's very easy to get into the victim mentality, especially now in this market as a buyer, where nothing's working out for you, everything's against you, you know, nothing you can't do, you can't do anything. Uh, but you've kind of proven that that's not true, right? Uh, you saw that you know mobile home parks were kind of a great niche for you to be able to get into yep. as a as a uh, you know, relatively new commercial real estate investor. And you've obviously has paid out for you uh, in, in, you know, a matter of six months. And I think that's also a testament to, you know, you don't need to be a 20, 30 year veteran of real estate to buy these deals, right? You don't need to have, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars to take down these properties, right? I think a lot of people still think that all this commercial real estate is owned by some big, you know, corporation yeah. or, <laughs> you know, all in, it's owned by these super rich guys and there's no way that I can get in as an individual. But a lot, I think it's, it's crazy to me to think that like 70% or 80% of all multifamily that's owned in the country is owned by mom and pop. And the rest of it's yeah. owned by like a syndication or by like large corporations, like very small amounts are actually owned by these big corporations. And I'm sure the same thing is even, is probably even higher for, for mobile home parks. Um, but Needless to say, like it's you've you've taken a very great mindset when it comes to real estate and commercial real estate. And, you know, it took you six months, um, but it could have taken you a year. And I think you still would have had the same <laughs> the same mentality and the same you know uh, mindset towards all this. So I think that's that's incredible. Um, I want to touch on something that you mentioned about, you know, there's some kind of slight nuanced differences between commercial real estate and, and residential real estate. What were some of those differences you found and how were you able to kind of overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to kind of just touch on also what you just hit on, I mean, this whole mentality and, and mindset, it's it's coming in. And, and what I would tell people is like, hey, listen, man, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. Like I, I, it frustrates me so much. And it's not just in real estate, but even in my own job, like my W-2 job. And, and you probably see it as a, as a sub officer, like, you know, guys who get frustrated if they fail after one you know, one try or, or two tries or, or anything like that, man, you got to get back up and it's a marathon. You know, this is a, this is a, uh, this is a 30 mile movement. This is not a, uh, you know, a hundred meter sprint and stuff like that. And the people who aren't able to mentally conceptualize that or, or see that in the abundant big picture, I, I think are ones that really struggle. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just wanted to hit on that to kind of go off what you were just saying, but yeah, the marathon mentality, but yeah, the, uh, kind of making that jump in the nuanced differences between residential and, and commercial real estate. I mean, I mean, where to start six months ago, I, I didn't even know how to calculate a cap rate. What, what is a cap rate? Uh, cap rates are used in commercial real estate. It's obviously not used in residential uh, single family, like duplexes and stuff like that, that we were investing in. I mean, little things like that. Um, PSAs, in, in residential, we just submit an LOI, it gets accepted. We go to attorneys and, and stuff like that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if I could tell anybody, and again, I, I was making small mistakes here and there, you know, the, the path itself is the same, you know what I mean? When it comes to residential and commercial real estate, it's just making those small adjustments. Hey, you know, we need to underwrite like this, or, you know, we need to understand, you know, this versus that or, or something like that. But, but, uh, you know, when looking at 
my first commercial property and what, you know, I'm going to get across the finish line here in a couple months. Um, I would, I would tell everybody and it kind of goes back to the mindset and really my whole why is built around mindset, but it, you know, I would tell anybody, Hey, go as big as you can, man, you know, go as big as you can, even for that first deal, mm-hmm. bigger is better. Um, you know, here I am, you know, you know, we didn't get started and no knock on guys who did get started doing, you know, an eight plaques or a six plaques or a 12 plaques or anything. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, those dudes smash it just as much as I do, but you know, six months ago I was cold calling 12 pad parks or 13 pad parks, 14 pad parks. The, the one change I made was I stopped cold, uh, cold calling them and I started cold calling hundred pad parks. And just like that, uh, whatever, we got one, um, just like that. So, you know, the path, the roadway, it's really not that much different. It's just, you know, things here and there that you can, you know, improve on and and whatnot and and utilizing the mastermind, utilizing your network and and stuff like that. But, you know, if Jesse Fuchsia six months ago didn't know what a cap rate is and and he's about to be under contract with 141 lot portfolio, it's just proof man, get out there, take action and, and you can do it and, and go big right off the rip. That's what I, that's what I would tell anyone who's making that jump. Who's, a, who's afraid to make that jump from residential to commercial, go for it. And I'm telling you, it's, it's more than possible. So, yeah. I think, uh, I think that's amazing. That again, that mentality that you have, but I think it's absolutely true. You know, you can spend your time on these smaller properties, but you know, the more that you get into this, the more you realize that it's the same amount of effort to take down a 10 pad unit as it is 150. So like, why not go bigger? Right. I was obviously more money, you know, uh, put into it, but you know, ultimately in the amount of time it takes and effort, it's, it's way more rewarding to do a larger property than it is a smaller property. Um, and you get more people involved, you get to build a bigger team. I mean, it's just, everything is, is much greater for a larger property in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, risk is distributed. You know, one person moves out of a 141 lot portfolio, absolutely different than uh, a family or, or something moving out of a single family, uh, you know, home. I mean, risk is distributed. I mean, there's so many benefits. Yeah, I, I can't hit on enough. Go go bigger right off the rip. I'm telling you that uh, anybody can do it if I can do it. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get into that to that 141 unit uh, or um, uh, pad deal in a little bit more detail. So where is, where is the property located? Is it in Fort Benning? Um, no, it's actually in Northern New York, um, way up near the Canadian border. So came across the deal. Um, yeah, it was an on market deal actually that, uh, was listed at like 1.5 million, uh, probably about a year ago. And, um, you know, various things happened, whatever the owner is an out of state baby boomer, um, looking to get out of the deal. And, um, you know, dropped the price significantly to uh, less than a million over 12 months. Uh, you know, a really kind of guy who's, who's just looking to get out of it. Um, and, and we capitalized on it. Had already built the relationship with the broker who was on the deal, you know, six months ago. I reached out to him when I got into this and uh, already had that relationship in place. And then when they dropped that price point beneath a million, um, yeah, it was a no-brainer. I mean, 141 lots for for less than a million dollars, it's it's a no-brainer. But but yeah, I came across it by an on, on market, and uh, yeah, it, it's an awesome find and a great big value add. It's going to be an awesome first test. Uh, it's not a uh, easy walk in the park turnkey, but um, we've got the team built out and and we're ready to take it on, and, and we're excited to get our hands on it next week and, and get it across the finish line in two months. So yeah, love it. 
So talk about how you actually built out your team up there. Cause you're obviously, you know, down in, in Georgia and this property is up yeah. in New York. Um, that's a pretty far distance away. It's not like, you know, a single family home that you were living close to where you could go actually talk with the tenants or look at, you know, the property or take care of repairs as needed. Right. Cause you're, you know, in the same, in that same area. So how did you go about building your team up there and, and feel confident that you had the right team to take down this property? Yeah. So, I mean, great question. And uh, to kind of preclude this question, I'd probably say we, you know, got our LOI submitted this past week, two weeks ago, I read um, a book. I don't know if you've read it, who, not how. Yeah. Um, and, and it, uh, when you, when you talk about building out a team and it, it's just crucial. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, a lot of networking and stuff like that. I had already had the background with the student housing in upstate New York. Um, so I had my dad there, had a couple of other buddies, um, and just began calling uh, people across northern New York, uh, property managers, plumbers, electricians, septic uh, operators, stuff like that, and just started, hey, you know, what's this property management going to look like? Um, obviously, I can't be there on an everyday basis. Um, our student housing portfolio is about four hours away, so we're not driving four hours uh, to go fix a light bulb or, or fix a, you know, a smashed window or something. Um, it's, it's a huge question. It's like, you know, it's a problem that demands a solution. Um, you know, what are we going to do? But, you know, immediately just started cold calling, uh, networking with operators already in the area, you know, Hey, who do you guys have? Who do you guys, uh, you know, like, or who does a good job up here? Who doesn't do a good job up here? And immediately, I mean, we've got a list of, uh, plumbers. We've got a, a list of electricians, um, snow removal, uh, quotes for trash. I mean, everything um, kind of built out. So really, I mean, you know, we're going to have uh, most likely um, kind of the main on-site manager will be, or be someone just within the park. Uh, that's actually pretty common with mobile home parks. Someone who lives in the park who's given free lot rent is usually the manager. Or it's the most simple uh, way to do it. And then, yeah, other kind of things that he can't handle. Um, we've got a list already built out of, you know, first, second, and third, uh, you know, contractors, plumbers, electricians, and stuff like that, that we can make a quick pivot to uh, if he, uh, you know, is unable to take on the problem for, you know, whatever reason. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's crucial. It's something that's going to test our team because uh, we're not used to operating um, property that far away. But um, I think with the right solutions, the right, uh, you know, the right solutions and stuff like that, like we'll be ready and we'll be ready to be tested. But yeah, it's exciting. Um, really just, again, just a lot of networking. I mean, immediately cold calling and, and getting on the phone with, with operators in the area and their recommendations was huge for that. So, yeah. So I think that's fascinating that you, one, were able to reach out to other operators in the area. Cause I think, I think that's a testament to your, your, um, fearlessness when it comes to cold calling, because I think a lot of people think that this is a very doggy dog world and that operators don't talk with each other and that everyone's the competition. Um, and it may be so in some markets. Um, but I think that's awesome that you just kind of push that aside and talked with operators who are already in that area, trying to find, you know, people who are good, who are bad, you know, um, so on and so forth for contractors. I think that's amazing. First of all, that you did that. Uh, secondly, you built a team from scratch. It sounds like, you know, a yeah. lot of people when they get into a new market will go and like, you know, um, go talk with the property managers who do these size, these size properties or who have the right connections or, you know, this guy or that guy, but you built your own team really from scratch and it didn't go down that route. Um, is, is that common for mobile home parks to not have like a, like a, a professional property management company like you would with multifamily or even in some other commercial real estate? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really dependent. I mean, I think it's based a lot on what's already in place and is what already in place working Um, already just, you know, from working with the broker and stuff like that. I mean, he has a property management, the seller does, that's already in place and it's very effective. And it's kind of like, hey, if if it's working, you know, why, uh, why change it? Why, you know, move to a a national company or, or a state company or something that might be more hands-off when we can have somebody who's already in the park, who has a great relationship with the tenants who, uh, you know, knows the area very well. I mean, someone who wants to move into the park, you know, um, you know, what is the property manager's thoughts on it and stuff like that. He might know them or know of them. So I think there's a lot of advantages. And again, it, it's really situation dependent. I think there are some parks, maybe in more metro areas that demand, uh, you know, a, a state or, or big time uh, operator. But for this one right here, if, it, if it's not broke, why, uh, why change it? And, and we're looking to, uh, to continue that and, and to keep that guy on. He's doing a great job. So why not help him out as well by giving him free lot rent and, and cause he's helping us out. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. Awesome. That you, you've been able to do that. Um, and, uh, and sounds like do it effectively. So how are you, uh, are you guys still doing a joint venture for this? Are you doing a syndication and raising money for it? Yeah. So this is, again, it's going to be a joint venture. Um, The financing that we got accepted though, it's an interesting financing solution. So it's a uh, kind of a combination between a mortgage assumption and owner financing. So the current seller still has a mortgage on the portfolio as is. So we're going to assume that in a first position. And then whatever is left over in the second position, he's going to carry a seller financing. So kind of, uh, again, kind of speaks to, um, you know, his level of motivation. Um, he's not looking for, uh, you know, a lot of cash up front. He's willing to hold the mortgage. Um, he, he really, again, he really just wants out. It kind of speaks to, uh, you know, where the price point has fallen here in the last 12 months or so. So again, an, an awesome find. Um, I, I got to kind of increase my literacy a little bit on the, uh, the mortgage assumption piece, you know, I understand the, that it is an assumable mortgage, you know, we can, he'll take his name off, we'll put our name on, but I don't have enough details yet um, on the, uh, the interest rates of his current mortgage, the years, the amortization, I mean, super key stuff that we're going to need, uh, obviously, to uh, be read on about uh, before closing and stuff like that. So that's definitely something that I got to close the gap on within the next couple of weeks for sure. But yeah, interesting financing, you know, just a joint venture, but a uh, mortgage assumption slash owner financing is how uh, we're going to finance it. So that's freaking awesome, man. And I, I want yeah. you to delve that into that a little bit more, but um, for, for the listeners who are, are listening to this, what he means by an assumable loan is yes, he's taking over the current loan, but there's some extra fees that normally get associated with that. Like, you know, maybe like a 1% assumption fee for the bank. Right. But I mean, if you find a good interest rate and you have a good chunk of maturity left on the property, like it's a pretty good, pretty good rate. Yeah. Uh, pretty good. Um, not having to go through the whole rigmarole, having a new uh, a new lender come in and have to bankroll all the you know, property, all the uh, property reporting and all that. And it just takes a lot more time to go through, you know, a, a new loan to that whole process. So I think that's awesome that you guys have done have uh, managed to kind of negotiate or at least are looking into doing the loan assumption. So can you talk to the other side of this on the seller finance part? Like how is that, how is that working um, with uh, in conjunction with this uh, assumption, uh, the uh, loan assumption? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically we, we have our price that we're locked in at Um, basically half of that price will equate to uh, the mortgage that he already has. So to kind of use rough numbers, uh, we'll use a mil- that we locked it in for a million dollars. 
Um, he still has a $500,000 loan. So that'll be 500,000 of that million that we'll assume. And then we have our 20% down payment, 200,000. So 200 plus 500 is 700. So there's still 300,000 left over that he's going to carry and, and sell our finance. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, speaks to his level of motivation. Um, we've got it locked in. I, I think we did 20 years for the seller financing piece, 20 years at a uh, 3.5%. So an awesome, awesome interest rate uh, to be able to borrow money on, on that. But we've also got a five-year balloon um, built into that seller financing piece as well. So the plan is at the end of year five to uh, cash out and to uh, get out from under him and pay him off. And, and, uh, and yeah, by, by year five, I mean, we absolutely believe we can work our value add plan of infilling lots, building back utilities, um, raising rents, stuff like that. I mean, those are kind of the three major things uh, when I think of value add mobile home parks, uh, you know, infilling lots, uh, bill be- billing back utilities that the current owner isn't already doing. And then those rent raises are, are super crucial. So, but, but yeah, that kind of speaks to the seller financing piece. I mean, I, I don't think it's as common to see that in multifamily. And I think you could speak on that more than I can, but definitely more common in mobile home parks where you have a mom and pop owner that might be in distress or, or pain or something like that. Um, you know, uh, owner financing, incredible opportunity. I mean, obviously non-recourse debt, which is one of the huge, uh, huge advantages to it. So, but, yeah. but yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, so, so last question on mobile home parks for getting to the snapshot round uh, for, you know, the, the learners that are listening to this and may want to get into mobile home parks um, and may have some sort of residential, maybe even multifamily experience. Uh, what are some of the factors that you look at to see if a park is, you know, is ready or primed uh, to try to buy, or that you know there's indications of a distressed seller or a distressed property. Um, how do you know a good deal from a bad deal in terms of mobile home parks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great question. Uh, you know, again, I kind of already hit on it a little bit, but mobile home parks as a whole are are super unconsolidated. Um, the majority owners are, are mom and pop owners who have owned the parks since the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever, and a lot of these mom and pop owners have built such relationships with their tenants that, you know, we, we see in some cases where there hasn't been a rent raise in like 20 years or, or 25, 30 years. I mean, it's crazy what you see out there. So when it, when it goes in, when I'm looking at like indications of what could be a good deal, what could be a bad deal. I mean, I'm always looking for the potential of the rent raise and looking for that very uh, low or very below market rent um, capability uh, within a, within a mobile home park. I, I think something else to consider as well is, is utilities. Um, you know, utilities can either be private or public with a mobile home park. So obviously public would just be, you know, town water, town sewer or, or city water, city sewer, you know, whatever the mus- municipality is. And then uh, private utilities can be a, a wide variety of things for, for private water. It can run with, you know, well on just well water or it can, uh, for sewer, it could be uh, you know, septics, uh, lagoons, um, fill in the blank. I mean, a bunch of different varieties and stuff like that. So I definitely think people obviously shy away from the private utilities and stuff like that. Um, so that could be an indication of a good deal or bad deal. I mean, again, I grew up in upstate New York. I mean, we used to go camping every summer and, and stay on lakes and stuff like that. I mean, Saratoga Springs, beautiful, beautiful part of New York. I mean, a lot of great camping up there and and whatever. So, I mean, I've been around private utilities. I mean, if people don't like to go for those deals or like to stay away from them, I mean, it's just more opportunity for us. I mean, as long as they're properly cared for, properly operated, um, there, there's no reason to shy away from them. So, but you see a lot of people doing that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say those are probably two, two easy kind of, 
hey, is this a good deal? Is this a bad deal with mobile home parks? You know, type of utilities, what you're looking for, and then also the market rate uh, of the rent and how low the current rents currently are, um, you know, within that park. So those are, those are kind of two main things I would probably hit on. Love it. Perfect. Love it. Thanks for explaining all that. All right, Jesse, ready to get into the snapshot round? Yeah, let's do it. All ahead, plank, cavitate, snapshot, tube, tube. All right, and first question for you. What is your number one failure in real estate? Oh man, number one fail. Um, you know, I, I uh, not, you know, nothing crazy stands out. We've never lost our shirt on a deal or anything like that. Um, I, I do have uh, a student housing kind of story of being a landlord and, you know, wrap it up as a failure and whatnot. Um, my dad and I were driving, like just to check on our properties one Saturday afternoon, like beautiful day, you know, springtime, Albany, New York. And uh, we're probably about like five, 10 minutes away. And uh, we're at this red light and a fire truck rips by us. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody knows where this story's going. But like at the time, we we're still 10 minutes away. And like our portfolio, it's situated in a pretty dense um, metropolitan area. So like that fire truck could be going anywhere, whatever we're, we're driving, still going, we're mm -hmm. two or three minutes away and, uh, and another one rips by us and, uh, we're getting a little nervous, you know, whatever. Um, but you know, again, it's a metropolitan area and we, uh, get ready to turn onto our street and it's every landlord's nightmare. Uh, you know, smoke is pouring out of the house. Uh, fire trucks are out in front. Um, a tenant is, you know, on the front, uh, yard, uh, you know, freaking out or whatever. And, and we pull up and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not kidding when we pull up, you know, the firefighters at the front door ready to smash and kick in our front door. Um, but we're able to, uh, you know, stop him in the, in the situation, open up the door. And luckily, you know, no tenants were inside or, or anything like that. Um, but on, unfortunately the tenant who was on the front yard had locked her, uh, locked himself out and left the stove on at the same time, which had caught the stove on fire, unfortunately. So, you know, long story short, obviously everything in our houses is, is up the code and fire marshals and in the whole nine yards, but, you know, maybe not like a, a bad real estate investing story, but just a bad student housing uh, niche story. So, uh, you know, luckily no, no major damage to the house or anything like that. Obviously no tenants inside, you know, thank God that's the number one priority, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, kind of a, a bad story of, you turn down the street, uh, black smoke, and it's like everybody's everybody's nightmare. Um, but but thank God, you know, nobody got hurt that day. So yeah, yeah. I guess that kind of throw it in the category if, if it counts. I I don't think you can go very long as a landlord and not have that happen, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I've had. Uh, I've had, I was going to say, do you have a, do you have a personal like fire story or, or no? I have two. So the, the three large apartment complexes that we, uh, that we control, two of them have had fires. One of them was a major fire and took out 12 of the 92 units in that, in oh, that building. Man. Um, luckily no one was hurt. Um, but we're still yeah. like dealing with the insurance claim from that. And it's been, yeah. uh, six months now since that happened to happen right around Christmas. Um, and uh, yeah, man, I just, I think it's at some point in time, you're going to have something like that happen. You're going to have a fire. You're going to have, you're going to have a, maybe even have a death. It's going to have something go wrong within, within yeah. your property. Um, one of my uh, business partners was telling me that um, one of his tenants just like was old and died in their apartment and no one knew about it for like, for like a few weeks. Yeah. When his, when he didn't pay rent. And so they had to bust in there and like, yeah, it was, 
long story short, this stuff happens. I think as a landlord. Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, all right. As an active duty investor, what advice do you have for other military investors to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think something super important and people, anyone can do this. And the number one thing I'd hit on is for guys, and I just did this a few months ago, for guys to get read on and, and just understand the VA loan process and how awesome that process is for 0% down and the awesome interest rates they have. Like my number one thing that like I would tell like just, you know, random military people out there who know nothing about real estate investing, like, listen, you can know nothing and use the VA loan and house hack a house and, and, you know, pay off your mortgage um, with the rent from the other side, just by house hacking for the VA loan. So that would be like uh, my number one thing. Like, I wish I started doing that. I don't know why I didn't do it when I got down here to Georgia, but at my next duty station, like I'm 100% going to utilize the VA loan. It's insane um, how awesome it is and and can be used on pretty much almost any property. Um, So that would be my number one bit of advice. Hey, get with a VA loan guy or get with someone who's already utilized it. You know, even if you're not interested in house hacking, like, Hey, no big deal. You can still utilize an awesome 0% down loan, which is provided to you by the government, pretty much um, the VA. So that'd be my number one thing. Anyone can use it. And and if you don't know about it, you need to know about it. So, yeah. Love it. Perfect. Couldn't be more. All right. What inspires you to serve your country? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing when I look back to like my decision to join the military was honestly just being a New York guy. It was it was probably, you know, even being as young as I was, like remembering 9-11 and stuff like that and, and being from New York, even, even though I'm not, you know, from New York City, I'm a I'm state guy. Um, just being from New York and, and 9-11 is probably the number one thing that, you know, makes me proud to do what I do. And it was kind of my motivating why to join the Army. Um, when I deployed in, uh, 2020, uh, before that deployment, I'd reached out to a member of the FDNY and told him that I, you know, Hey, you know, I'm about to deploy and it would be cool to carry a piece of the world trade center on me, uh, during the deployment. So super, super awesome. I, I reached out to him and, uh, he was able to get me a piece of concrete facade, uh, from the South tower that I, you know, whatever, just kept on my kit, uh, during that deployment, but it, it was a cool opportunity. And, and to be uh, privileged with something that uh, to carry that on me during the deployment. And, and yeah, that, that's probably just my number one why. I mean, being an upstate New York guy and being from that state, I mean, 9-11 is a part of your history. So it was cool to carry that on me. And, and yeah, that's pretty much. Love it. I love it, man. All right. And the last question for you, Jesse, what is your dream? Man, I, I would say, you know, probably similar to a lot of other guys. I mean, being financially free and, and just being able to have that freedom. If I could say it in one word, it, it would be the dream is freedom and, and freedom to do whatever I want, you know, with my family, freedom to go on uh, quarterly vacations, uh, freedom uh, to have passive income and, and set my own hours and, and work the days I want to work. So that, that's the dream. It's the end state. It's going to happen, Anthony. There's zero doubt in my mind. I'm excited. We got this, uh, we're going to get this deal across the uh, finish line here in a couple months. And uh, it's going to be the road to a thousand, man, for sure. So, but yeah, end state dream, you know, I'm fully financially free with my family. So absolutely. I love it. I love it, man. Awesome. Jesse, I've had a blast having you on the show. I mean, your, your energy, your mentality, your mindset um, towards real estate investing, just the life in general, it's just, it's infectious. And I appreciate you bringing that onto the show because I think a lot of people will get, um, will get inspired and motivated by, by your story. Um, and so I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to reach out to you. So where can they go to, to, 
you know, contact you or learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. Hit me up. I'm, I'm big, um, huge on LinkedIn. So definitely, I'm sure my name will be in the show notes or something. My, my last name's kind of funky to spell. Um, whatever, hit me up on, hit me up on LinkedIn, shoot me a DM. And I love networking, you know, and talking with everyone. If it's real estate related, if it's not real estate related, if, if they have questions about anything, I'd, I'd love to hop on a call and network. So yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn for sure. Perfect. Absolutely. And we'll include that in the show notes. Again, Jesse, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for, uh, for, for sharing your story and being inspiring and uh, hope you stay safe back in the States, man. Absolutely. Same to you, Anthony. Had a blast, brother. Can't wait to uh, maybe come back on next year or, or whenever in the future and, and talk more for sure, brother. So yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. If you are a military investor and found this episode of the Lessons in Real Estate show packed with great information, tell your friends and leave a five-star rating on your listening platform. Every comment is read and appreciated. Don't forget to check out our weekly episodes of PCI Teaches, brought to you by Pinto Capital Investments. Learn about basic and advanced topics in real estate investing. Catch updates on Anthony's journey through Learn and Teach segments. And listen to the tales of other military investors and real estate professionals every week. We'll catch you next time on the Lessons in Real Estate show.